Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, get really snuggly in your favorite blanket. Or if you're a nuanced Mormon or an ex-Mormon and you don't like the, the taste of coffee or you don't do coffee because it's bitter and not delicious to the taste, then grab yourself something like what I have. Uh, a chai latte or chocolate milk, my very favorite, and let's get going with this podcast. So when I was trying to decide how to open this box with episode one, what do I want to talk about? There's so many different things. I felt a little bit like I did back at square one, right when I was deciding to transition out of the church. And I often talk about how It felt like all of the pieces of my identity, all of the understanding I had about God, all of the understanding I had about how the world worked, it all just went spilling onto the table. Mormonism was the bag that carried that, and when the bottom broke out of that everything, all of the contents went spilling onto the table, and I remember that overwhelming feeling of, where do I start to pick up these pieces? And because that's the feeling I had a little bit today, and also because I'm about to do my third group, um, my third identity reclamation group called Reclaim Your Power, which is all about this whole process of the spilling of all of your identity all over the place, figuring out what to pick up, what to keep, what to discard. I thought, you know what? This is where we're going to start with this podcast. Episode one is going to be about this process of releasing our high demand religion identity and picking up an authentic identity. We're going to talk about that whole process and we're going to talk about the difference between belonging and fitting in. So like I said, grab that cup of coffee or tea or chocolate milk or whatever it is that is your beverage of choice and let's get cozy here at this table and let's talk like friends. When I was a little kid, I remember we would sit in the children's group in Mormonism called Primary, and we would sing a song that would start with the words, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it would say, I know who I am. I know God's plan. I'll follow him in faith. And I loved that tune, and I would sing it really loud. And I started thinking about the idea of belonging. When I was an active member, I felt like I belonged to the church. And maybe you can, you you feel that way about the church that you came from as well, regardless of what religion it is or what your congregation is like. Maybe there was a time where you felt like, this is my family. This is where I belong. This is what belonging feels like. And when we don't know the difference between fitting in and belonging, fitting in can feel like belonging because we have a place 
There's a space for us. We're accepted. We have community. People are there for us. But there's a really big difference between belonging, which is what we're all wired for. We come into this world wired for love and connection. In fact, they've done studies and have found that people, whether infants or adults, who are isolated and lonely, we begin to perish. We begin to die. We need connection. We need belonging in order to thrive as human beings. We're a very social species. And so we are willing to fit in for survival. But what we crave is belonging. So let's talk about the difference. I want you to sit with that for a minute. Can you think of times in elementary school or maybe in college or after that where you felt like you had to suppress certain parts of yourself or you had to conform in order to fit with a group? I can think of several instances both in my religious life and not in my religious life. So in high school, there were instances like this on the cheer squad, in the auto mechanics group that I was part of, um, debate team, youth and government, where I had to release or suppress certain parts of myself to be more acceptable to the group. And I don't think that I am unique in this situation. I think a lot of teenagers go through this, right? That we put off certain parts of ourselves in order to fit. That is fitting in. It's when you don't get to be 100% authentic. You don't get to be 100% yourself. You don't say certain things that you actually think or actually believe. You don't contradict the main messages that are happening in the church for fear of being ridiculed or fear of being kicked out of the group. Maybe you dressed a certain way or spoke a certain way Maybe you engaged in activities like drinking or drug use that made you more acceptable to the group. Maybe in the case of my religious life, maybe there were certain ways you dressed that signified that you were modest and pure and righteous, which made you more acceptable to especially the elders or the leaders of the group. Maybe there was a cadence to your language or certain words or vocabulary that you took on. Maybe you didn't pursue getting your hair dyed blue or your hair dyed pink and instead kept it a nice natural um, a nice natural color in order to avoid ridicule. Maybe you were confused by feelings of attraction to the same sex, whether you were bisexual or homosexual and you found yourself suppressing that part of yourself so that you wouldn't be kicked out of the group. Perhaps you had feelings about God that didn't fit with the narrative. Maybe you thought about sin in a different way. Maybe you didn't think drinking was so bad. Or perhaps you cussed in private. Maybe there were things you did that you kept secret and to yourself so that you wouldn't be ostracized. That is fitting in. Belonging, on the other hand, is when we get to be authentically, completely, entirely ourselves. And we're acceptable and worthy of love and belonging exactly as we are. This happens when we are free to disagree. We're free to think independently. We're free to be unique in our dress and appearance. 
Our manner of language gets to be different than those around us. And we don't need to conform in order to be accepted and loved and valued. Now, I know there are going to be some people that are listening to this episode that say, that doesn't happen. I love and value people who are different than me. But do we allow ourselves to have close friendships with people who are different than us? Do we allow our kids to play with kids who are different than ours? Do we spend our weekends or our holidays with friends who celebrate differently than we do? Do we have any judgments about people who believe differently than we do or have a different culture than we do, have a different skin color than we do, have a different sexual life than we do? My question about this is we all judge. Judgment is something we all do. But we're less likely to judge when we ourselves are allowed to be authentic. When we accept our authentic selves, we're more likely to accept other people's authentic selves. And in high demand groups, one of the ways that we keep people in line is through shame tapes, right? Through judgment of ourselves and others. And we can't help but let that spill out into our judgment of people not in the group as well. So these are just questions. Maybe your religious experience was different than mine or different than my clients, but I want you to ask yourself and just get curious without judgment. Is this something that I do? Do I keep myself apart and separate from people who are different than me? And why? What are my feelings about that? And if I'm making judgments about people who are different than me, do I have about myself? What parts of myself do I suppress in order to belong to the group? Something I want to talk about is something called a pseudo-identity, sometimes called a cult identity, and this happens a lot in high-demand groups, not just religious groups. It can be commercial groups or political groups. It can be educational or psychological groups, but when there is a prescribed, quote-unquote, right way to be, when there is an ideal, so often, without even realizing it, we begin to slough off parts of our authentic self and suppress them. Some people will talk about putting those parts of yourself in a tight box inside of yourself. Some people will talk about, you know, just putting up a wall and pretending like those parts of yourself don't exist. And other people will talk about convincing themselves that that's not really how they feel, that it's Satan, that it's some evil dark force making them feel that way, that that isn't actually authentically who they are or what they want. When we have this quote-unquote right way or ideal way to be, we will subconsciously start taking pieces of ourselves over time that don't fit that narrative, and we will suppress them in order to take on the ideals of the group. So I'm going to tell you a little story about me and just kind of how this happened in my life and see if you can identify maybe if it happened in your life, okay? I was born a very confident kid, a very ambitious kid. I'm also female, which can be a problem in some high-demand religions, especially because females or and those of us who identify as female, our purpose a lot of times in high-demand, especially high-demand Christian religions, but also in Muslim and Jewish religions, our purpose is to bear children and to rear those children to live the ideals of the group. That was my purpose, and it was taught to me from the time I was very, very young. I can remember being told 
in lessons for, you know, young women that the highest honor a woman could have is to become a mother. I was not naturally inclined to like kids. I didn't really enjoy babysitting. I didn't like other people's babies. I didn't want to hold them. Um, I liked looking at them. And I thought babies were cute. And I thought I wanted to be a mother someday. But my life didn't revolve around this motherhood instinct. In fact, when I thought about my adult life, I often pictured myself in a business suit in a boardroom. I pictured myself doing high-powered business things. And I remember over and over and over again getting this message that my desires, the things I authentically craved, were something men wanted to do. It was something that was hardwired into men, but women, we had a natural desire to want children and to rear them and to be stay-at-home moms. And I was really confused because that wasn't what was going on inside of me. But because I knew that that wasn't acceptable, simply because of the way it was often talked about and because of all of the examples I had of stay-at-home moms around me rearing children with apparent smiles on their faces and the men going to work, I began to draw conclusions about myself that were really, for me, very scary. I began to believe that I wasn't normal. Something was wrong with me. I began to believe that maybe I was supposed to be born a boy. There was part of me that wondered if maybe I wasn't meant to be transgender. And that was really scary because the things I heard the adults say about transgender kids and people gender than they were, it was apparent that they were not welcome in the group. And so... It really became difficult to explore this part of myself. And so instead, I found myself suppressing that that bit of me and taking on what I saw other women mirroring. So I began to force myself to want to have kids and to tell myself that that's actually what I wanted and to suppress my dreams of business and, and other things. So perhaps you can relate with that. By the time I got into my late 20s, I was so frustrated. And actually, I believe that's what led to my clinical depression. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 30, but I had been experiencing it for a few years. I think I was so frustrated because I didn't fit the narrative I was living. I didn't belong as the quiet, submissive wife. I had never been quiet and submissive in my entire childhood. I was bright and happy and easy to get along with, but also opinionated and bossy, and I was a natural-born leader. I was ambitious. I was outgoing. I was charismatic, and those things were not celebrated for women, only for men, and so it was it was a death of myself to not be able to express those things to be acceptable in the church. That's what I'm talking about, about pseudo-identity. I was still Terry. But I was a pseudo version of myself. I had eliminated the parts of me that were not acceptable. And it was only when I could accept all of myself that I was able to heal and move forward from a lot of the depressive episodes I was having and to begin to embrace myself with love and compassion. All right, so let's talk a little bit about loss of identity after you leave the organization. So if you've spent a lot of time in a high-demand 
organization, religious or non-religious, and you've put off pieces of yourself and taken on pieces of the group identity to be more acceptable and to fit in, um, and you may have done it for praise or for promotion, you may have done it um, to be lifted on that pedestal, which feels really good. There are a lot of reasons that we do this, right? We we receive love and belonging, but sometimes we also receive accolades, praise. Um, lo- there's lots of different benefits to doing this. But when we decide that the organization is no longer serving us and we leave, particularly if we find that the organization has been lying to us or deceiving us in some way, the bottom falls out of our identity, kind of like I was talking about at the beginning of the program. And all of the pieces spill out and we have to pick up the pieces and look at them one by one. And it is a process. We have to pick them up and decide, is this actually me or is this who I was told I had to be to fit in? I remember having to pick up the pieces of, do I want to stay married? Is marriage something I want? It was so scary, you guys. That was one of the most frightening moments. That was one of the first pieces I picked up. I remember was sitting with my husband and asking him, we got married so young and we did it because we were told it was the right thing to do. We barely knew each other when we got married. Do you still want to choose me? Do I still want to choose you? Are there other things that we want to explore or need? Do our marriage vows hold weight? We had to sit with that and it was frightening. And we promised each other we would be honest, that we would have integrity and that we would work through whatever came up regardless. We knew that we loved and cared about one another, but we also knew that our past had been shaped by what to us was a false narrative. And so we gave ourselves permission to sit with that and to be really honest. And ultimately, we decided that we did want to stay married, that we loved each other very much, that it's what we still would have chosen, that there were things that we were sad about that we didn't get to experience because we got married so young, but that ultimately we had grown together and that our life was a good one and we wanted to continue together. Very difficult conversation. And a very scary piece of our identity to pick up and look at, right? The next piece of our identity we had to look at was motherhood, fatherhood. We had had two children because we had been told that that was part of our duty, that we had made promises before we ever came to earth that we would have as many children as possible. And luckily, infertility kept us from having the eight kids that I thought I wanted to have in college, not because I actually wanted to have eight kids. Remember, kids are not my thing, but because full people have big, large families. And so I thought in order to be the best woman possible, I would want a really large family. I'm really grateful now that I had infertility issues, and we'll talk about those later, that kept me from being able to have my own kids for 10 years. But um, I did end up with two children, and that one didn't take long for either of us. As hard as parenting is, we love our kids immensely. It is what we would have chosen for ourselves, and we would have chosen that for ourselves in the time frame it happened. Because we had seven years of waiting for children, um, we got to experience a lot of life. We got to do a lot of things we wouldn't have been able to do had we had children that very first year when we started trying The only thing we would have changed was the shame and the sorrow that came from not being able to get pregnant and feeling like 
God was trying to give me a message about my worthiness as a mother. God was trying to give me a message of some sort about, you know, things I needed to learn in order to be okay. And secretly, the whole time, I was worried that he knew I didn't really like kids um, and that he felt I wasn't a worthy mother. And so there was all of these shame tapes and things that came around having kids because of our infertility. But ultimately, after we left the church and we picked up that piece, we looked at it and realized we love being parents to these two kids. It is hard. It is challenging. It's difficult. It's sometimes crazy making. And these kids have been a light in our lives and we love them dearly. And we would have chosen to be their parents. We just wished it would have been our choice out of yeah, we're so excited and so ready to bring new lives into the world, not a sense of obligation or duty the way it was. So it was each time we picked up pieces of our identity, it really was refreshing to realize, yes, we would have chosen what we chose, but we wish we would have chosen it with a different attitude, with less fear, um, which really has been kind of the the recurring theme throughout sorting through our identity. Now, there's other pieces. I no longer want to be quiet and submissive. I'm sorry. That's not who I am. I was here to have a voice. I am very empathic. I'm very compassionate, but I'm also very outspoken. I am both. And it's okay to be both. It's okay to speak up. I love speaking up in rooms full of men because I don't consider myself less intelligent, less worthy of conversation than men are. And I don't have to pretend that I believe that anymore. And I don't have to defer to men to massage their egos. That includes my husband, much to his chagrin sometimes. However, I will tell you that we've had a very equal marriage most of our life. It's just become even more, even more prominent that we are equal partners because I feel more comfortable speaking up. It wasn't so much he would speak up. It was me taking those internal messages from church and feeling like, well, he's the patriarch in the home. I can't speak up. And he was there saying, I want you to speak up. And I was feeling like I can't. I shouldn't. That's not what I'm supposed to do. So now I feel completely comfortable being like, hey, I don't like how this is working. Or, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? I don't mind taking the lead at home because that's naturally who I am. I love leading. I love having deep, deep conversations about sometimes very mm, conflictual ideas. I like debating. I like discussing. And I feel much more comfortable allowing that part of myself out in our relationship now. There are other things that I've been able to let go of, this idea of sinning, that making mistakes is somehow inherently bad. (laughs) There are other things I've been able to let go of, but you get the idea of what I'm talking about. We have to sort through the pieces after we leave a high-demand religion, and even not high-demand religions, you guys. This happens sometimes even for non-denominational Christians who just decide, you know what, I can't do this, and then they have to go through all the pieces of their life that are Christian and decide which pieces of this are authentically me and which aren't. I will tell you that the more high demand the religion, the more intricate and difficult this process is, the less high demand religion, the the smoother this process goes. So 
Just know that when you leave a religion, when you leave a high demand religion, or you just begin questioning, um, I have several friends who are nuanced in their in their faith, nuanced Christians, nuanced Mormons, nuanced Jehovah's Witnesses that have gone through and decided these are the parts I want to keep and these are the parts that I don't want to keep. This is the process that they go through to do that. Okay, so you've sorted through everything that's on the table or you're beginning to sort through things on the table and you're trying to decide, is this me? Is this not me? Is this something that the church gave me? Do I want to keep it? How do you figure out what is authentically you? This was the big question for me when I left was, how do I tell what is authentically Terry and what is not? Because the last time I can remember feeling authentically myself, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. I had just entered into the youth organization. I hadn't gone to seminary yet. I hadn't gone to Brigham Young University yet. Hadn't gotten married yet. I was still allowed to be childlike. I had picked up some messages, but I was mostly authentically myself. And so I'm not the same person I was when I was 12 or 13, though I will tell you when I left, I did feel like that person stuck in an adult body because everything that came after that was heavily indoctrinated. And there was a lot of the church mixed in with my own experience and my own personality and my own growth. And a lot of that was cut out. So I felt very childlike inside of my adult body, which was insane and scary. And we will talk about that in a future episode. Um, There's so much to unpack there. But there, I felt so naive and I felt so unknowledgeable about the world and how it works and being, being an adult out in the world. It was a very scary process. So how did I figure out and how do I help my clients figure out who we authentically are? I'm only going to give you three of the processes in this episode simply because we spend weeks in my um, Reclaim Your Power group going through six different ingredients to help you, like six different stages to help you really reclaim your identity. But the three first ones are typically ones that you can start at home, okay? The first one is just to feel your emotions. Now, this sounds really basic, but in high demand religion, a lot of times there are certain emotions that are not okay to feel. For me, in my experience, it it has a lot to do with not just the religion you're in, but also the family you're in. For me, anger was off the table. I wasn't allowed to feel anger, so I would often either stuff the anger or I would morph it into sadness. I would deny the anger because being angry meant that you were under Satan's influence because contention is of the devil and our prophets had told us to, you know, really bridle our anger and I felt like I needed to control anger. Now, there's a difference between feeling and emotion and then carrying through with an action, right? All of our emotions, including anger, sadness, grief, jealousy, um, envy, all of those things, fear, all of them have important messages for us about who we are, what we like, what we dislike, what we value, and what we want. When I feel angry, it's because I feel taken advantage of. 
or I feel like something is unfair, or I feel powerless, or it's part of grief, right? That gives me understanding about what needs to change. And that big energy jolt helps me understand, like helps give me the power to change those things. So anger tells me what is wrong. It's an alarm bell to say, hey, this isn't right. This is bothering you. This has crossed your boundaries. This needs to change in your life. And it gives me the energy and this feeling of bigness so I can change it. Now, many of us lash out in anger because we've stuffed anger for so long. Sometimes just a little bit more anger will make the volcano explode. If we can sit with anger breathe through that energy, move it through our body by doing something productive like running or punching a punching bag or writing in a vomit journal. If we can do something that allows us to move that energy through so we can understand it and know what we need to do with it, we don't erupt. We allow ourselves time to process and then we can act from our inner knowing. Because we listen to the anger and we know what needs to change in order for us to feel safe or powerful or like we have boundaries, right? The same is true for fear. The same is true for grief. The same is true for jealousy and envy. All of it is just information from our inner knowing about what we want, what we value, what we like and dislike, and who we are. So the very first step is always to feel your emotions because emotions are neither good nor bad. They just are. They're just information. They're just part of the human experience. Someone once said that we were thinking beings that occasionally felt emotions, but we found that we are actually emotional beings that actually occasionally think. Being emotional is part of being human. And Brene Brown has told us that we can't selectively numb emotion. So for many of us, when we leave high demand religion, feeling all of our emotions, being able to label them and saying, oh, I'm feeling frustration or I'm feeling disappointment. I'm feeling loneliness. I'm feeling um, betrayal. I'm feeling I'm feeling passionate, I'm feeling love, I'm feeling all of these things. We have a hard time labeling them sometimes because certain feelings, certain emotions, certain thoughts are not okay. We numb those certain emotions, but over time it numbs all emotion. And we sever ourselves from our body so that we don't have to feel those things. And we do it with lots of different things. We do it with thought-stopping techniques. We do it with, you know, humming a little hymn. We do it with prayer. We do it with um, journaling or just literally thought-suppressing certain emotions and stuffing them. So, and we numb in a host of other different ways too. Uh, Overeating, overworking, overshopping, overparenting. Um, feeling like we need to serve at church, that can be a, a numbing tool as well, keeping ourselves really busy so we don't have to feel. So learning to feel, learning what different emotions feel like, getting curious about what that sensation is. What does anger feel like for you? Physiologically, how can you tell when you're angry? How can you tell when you're scared? 
How can you tell when you're feeling ashamed? How can you tell when you're feeling guilt? How can you tell when you're feeling love or joy? What does that feel like in your body? Can you label it? Because being able to acknowledge an emotion and give it a name is so powerful to being able to understand your inner knowing. It is the key to being able to understand who you are, what you want, what you value, what you like and dislike. It is huge. The biggest first step. The second step is being willing to try things on and make mistakes. So I had sort of an aha moment. I now consider it like a download from collective knowing or a download. It was something smarter than me. It didn't come from me. I don't know where it came from. Maybe I heard it like subconsciously on a television program. But I remember distinctively being in the shower, trying to understand, getting comfortable with trying things on and making mistakes. Because I don't know about you, but in high demand religion, making mistakes was highly frowned upon. They didn't want you experimenting and trying new things and making mistakes that could possibly be against the organization's rules. And so making mistakes was one of those things that I had to learn how to do and how to embrace. And I remember being in the shower and having this thought of making mistakes is like trying on shoes. You're going to try different things on. You're going to go to the store basically And you're going to try different things on and see if they fit. See if they're comfortable. See if they make you happy. And you're allowed to try on every pair of shoes in that store until you find the ones that make you happy. And just because you try on a pair of shoes doesn't mean you have to buy the pair of shoes. And just because you buy a pair of shoes doesn't mean you have to wear them forever. You can always come back and buy a different pair of shoes. Maybe a pair of shoes fits you for a season or for a certain occasion, but that doesn't mean it has to be the only pair of shoes you wear for the rest of your life. And there was something about that message that just freed me, that helped me to realize I was free to try things on and see if they fit me now. I was allowed to try on things, even things I had been told were a mistake and I wasn't doomed forever if I tried on the wrong pair of shoes. I could try something on, like swearing, for instance. I tried on swearing and realized there were certain words that felt like me, certain words that didn't, and only certain occasions that I wanted to be able to use them. I have this kind of childlike voice and I'm this kind of small woman with a childlike voice, sometimes people don't take me seriously until I throw down a curse word. And it is really lovely to be able to get people's attention. And so, yeah, I like to be able to have that freedom to use curse words for emphasis when I need it. There are other things that I tried on that didn't fit as well. So I tried coffee for the first time. Gross. (laughs) I thought it was so gross. So I'm still a chocolate milk drinker, or I do like chai lattes. So I'm still a chocolate milk drinker, or I'll drink chai lattes. I really dislike coffee. I don't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't fit my taste buds. 
But I was really nervous to try it because what if I got addicted, right? Like what if it was what if it was something awful? So I tried it, realized it had no power over me because it did not fit in my life and I was not compelled to drink more and I was able to set it to the side. I was even able to try it on several times and realize, nope, I really just don't like it. So it's the same for you. You may, we're trying on going other places for Christmas instead of always being with our family or always being at home. We're trying on different traditions for Christmas to see what fits for us, to see what traditions we want to keep and which ones just don't fit us any longer. We're allowing ourselves to shoe shop and take what works for our family and discard what doesn't. So that is a really, really, um, that was a really helpful analogy for me when I was trying to make decisions for myself because finding your authentic identity will involve trying things on. It will involve making choices and just seeing how they fit and getting curious with yourself about what feels good and what doesn't. The last one is releasing limiting beliefs. So this is where I find that most people get caught up, sometimes months or years after their religious transition. Because limiting beliefs are held in our subconscious, they're basically just things that we've told ourselves so many times that we believe that they're truth. And when you've been in a high-demand religion, there are many things that we've been taught over and over and over again as just unequivocal truth. And as long as it remains in our subconscious without being challenged, we live our lives by those rules. And I find that so often a year or two or five or 20 later, that's when I'm getting my clients coming in and saying, hey, so... I transitioned from my faith, you know, 10 years ago, but I'm still finding it hard to love myself as I am. Or I transitioned from my faith three years ago and I've gone through therapy, but there are still things that I feel shame about doing, or I still feel guilty around my parents, or I still feel like a bad daughter or a bad son. I'm still worried about my kids and how they're going to grow up and what kind of people they're going to be. These kinds of things are evidence of limiting beliefs. Anytime you're feeling fear or shame, there is a limiting belief behind it. And often it can be really difficult to pinpoint those without some outside help. So this is where I recommend getting a therapist or a coach who's well-versed in limiting beliefs and trauma because we are limiting beliefs daily to people, but we don't recognize that we are speaking limiting beliefs because we accept them as truth. Okay, you may have limiting beliefs about money, limiting beliefs about you know, whether money is good or evil, how much you should have, um, whether it's okay to make any money, especially if you're a woman. Um, You may have limiting beliefs about your role as a parent. You may have limiting beliefs about literally any part of your life. So if you find that you've transitioned, you for the most part know who you are and you're feeling pretty good about that, but there's still areas of your life where you feel stuck or there's shame or there's fear. Talk to a therapist who deals with religious trauma syndrome. Talk to a coach. 
who deals with limiting beliefs or with religious trauma because we're going to be able to help you pinpoint what the limiting belief is so that we can bring it from the subconscious to the conscious where you can examine it with curiosity and non-judgment and decide, is this serving me anymore? Do I want to keep this belief? And if not, what do I want to replace it with? What belief would serve me better? You will be surprised how fast you move forward in life, how much more you get the things you want when you address the limiting beliefs you have and you're able to move forward. Well, you guys, if you've been drinking your cup of coffee or your cup of tea or your cup of chocolate milk, we're nearing the bottom. We're almost done with our date, and it's really been a pleasure. I've loved being able to sit here with you and just have this discussion. If anything came up for for you during this discussion, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what came up. I want to hear what you agreed with. I want to hear what you disagreed with. I love disagreement. That's something you need to know about me. Not so I can debate or prove myself right, but because when people disagree with me, I get a chance to examine my limiting beliefs, examine what I believe to be true, examine what I think about the world, and challenge it to decide whether it's something I want to keep or whether it's time to get rid of that belief and change it to something new. I look forward to these kinds of discussions with you. Again, if you would like to have more discussion, please Either join Instagram at Emancipated Molly. Go follow me there. We can have a message discussion. You could go to my Facebook group. I'll put the link here in, in the episode notes. I have a, a Facebook group called Emancipate Yourself. We talk back and forth. I do video trainings. I do free coaching sometime. So if that's something you feel like you would need, we address topics that people bring up. It's a brand new group, so you have not missed out on much. I'm trying to think what else. Those are probably the best two ways. So feel free to come have discussion. Get your questions answered. Feel free to come get vulnerable with me. I am right on the same level with you. I don't pretend to have all of the answers. These are the things that I have learned, but I am constantly learning just like you. You and I are fellow travelers on the very same path. I might be a few steps ahead. I might be a few steps behind if you're listening to this and you've been going through this for many more years than I have. But I hope what I have to share with you is helpful, it's insightful, and it helps you start really digging deep into who you are, what you want, what you value, so that you can get the life of love and happiness, belonging, and joy that you deserve. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. And we'll see you next week.